Chapter 27 Goodbye, Sweet Dreams Nurse Paul ran his finger around the circumference of his one-year coin. He picked it up at the downtown noon meeting at the Claremont Hotel. He liked it there. He took a seat and blended in with the old man after celebrating his 365 days of continuous sobriety the only way he knew how, with a handful of tokens at the Champ Arcade. He remembered sipping from his styrofoam cup, but couldn't hear the message. He couldn't even hear the words over the white noise of shame. He just watched their mouths moving. The only thing he could feel was the moist spot on the front of his underwear. He shifted in his seat. He wondered what it was that brought him back over and over again. Not to the meetings, that was easy. He was told to keep coming back, more times than he could count. But to the porn store. In his mind, he had lost everything to that place. His wife, his home, his financial security, his sanity. Everything. He pulled the token out of his pocket and placed it next to the coin. He'd even lost hope of finding another good woman after an unpleasantness that occurred on a night he got a little too reckless there. He pinched the material of his slacks and found the scar tissue on the tip of his dick. It was the result of a botched self-treated chemical burn he was too embarrassed to go to the ER for many years ago and a recurring reminder of the end of his marriage every fucking time he took a piss. In his darkest moment, he even blamed his attraction to men on the Champ Arcade, not that he was attracted to men. He just couldn't stop thinking about them. He heard footsteps go by in the hallway. How could he be subjected to working in such an environment? With such fucking idiots. He was a trained goddamn mental health professional, for Christ's sake. Things came so fucking easy to them, he just couldn't understand. He scratched his forehead so hard it almost drew blood. He tried hard to remember if God had failed him or if he had failed God. And what the fuck difference did it make anyway? He drifted from disconnected thoughts to incensed mumbling. Oh, so funny, so popular with the staff and patients, such an inspiring story, blah, blah, blah. Why can't everyone just shut the fuck up? Sometimes he was just a passing thought, an annoyance. Other times the bane of his existence, a curse, his tormentor, a man he hadn't even made eye contact with in over a decade. Me. He nearly jumped out of his skin when he heard two quick thumps on his door. Incoming, I warned. I had one length of hallway to come up with a really convincing lie. I wasn't worried, but I took my time. I was a master craftsman, an artist, and deception was my canvas. I was Michael Jordan, and he was a fourth-grade white kid with polio. <laughs> I had this one. I smirked at how easy it would be. I was a howitzer tank. He was a tricycle. Lying was my most finely honed skill. It was what I was born to do. I was unstoppable. Boxing had Ali. Pros had Nabokov. Drinking at Hemingway. This was my game. I was excited. Would I water down her absence or rose color it? Possibilities were endless and the result would be more pleasant than the truth because the truth would simply not do. Not tonight. I made the approach with confidence. I sized him up. His slumped shoulders and caved-in chest would make this child's play. I licked my lips, cleared my throat. 
Um, Robert? I stood there with my mouth agape and choked on nothing. I know she wasn't there, kid, he said, mercifully breaking the silence. I smelled smoke. Now I'd lost control of everything. Cigarette smoke meant mutiny. I didn't doubt for a second where it was coming from. I excused myself, stomped down the corridor, and barged into their room. Molly and April stood there in t-shirts and panties with their backs to the open window, each one concealing something behind their backs. We're sorry, Daddy, they said in unison. I will deal with you two later, I barked at them. I didn't give them the satisfaction of slamming the door, but I didn't wait around long enough to hear whatever wise crack they had chambered for me either. I'd expected to catch him reading the dog-eared copy of the bell jar he'd hidden in his pillowcase, but instead found him lost in thought sitting on the edge of his bed in his boxer shorts. He was startled when we walked in. Justin was an oxycotton addict. A sensitive little teenaged intellectual with lopsided jet black haircut that hung over one eye. I liked him anyway. He was a sparkly, clean suburban kid who got caught up in his grandparents' medicine cabinet. The place was rotten with him. Doctors practically had these high-powered synthetic painkillers sitting in candy dishes in their waiting rooms hanging around for the hapless youngster with just the right genetic predisposition to gobble them up. They were like new-fangled, junky landmines. The withdrawals were brutal. The amount of people under the age of 30 who were currently lying in those creaking treatment center beds in disbelief as their joints seized like unoiled pistons and their flesh crawled with hot and cold running misery could have quite fairly been called an epidemic. When I told him his story would end up being the same as mine if he didn't get his shit together, he believed me. When I underlined the parts of the book that he should pay attention to, he took note. He was quite pleased to find out he had a spiritual malady, a mental obsession, and an allergy of the body. He smiled as if his whole life was making sense to him now. There was no sleep to be found in his not-too-distant future, so we talked late into the last few nights about movies, music, books, and how to maintain your sobriety despite the fact you don't now nor ever will believe in God. Yes, I had been playing favorites, but there was only one empty bed in the place and Justin's turbulent nights would have to be made a little bit worse with the addition of an old drunk from Tacoma Snores. I introduced them. They nodded at each other. I sat Robert's suitcase on the edge of his bed. He unzipped it, he fumbled with his shaving kit, he dropped toiletries, a chapstick, his loose change. He stood there red-faced, partly angered, partly embarrassed, looking down at his useless shaking hands. Sorry, Mr. Turner, it's house policy that I unpack your bag for you. You know, in case of contraband. I had already checked his bag at my desk, but in the last 30 minutes his life had been fucked and rolled in dog shit and there was nothing I could do to help. His trembling fingers, untrustworthy bladder, and broken heart would heal with time but a little bit of his dignity needed rescuing at the moment. Charlie, can I talk to you in the hall? Justin asked sheepishly. First things first, buddy. You and I are going to be of service. One of the first things you'll learn around here is the best way to get out of your own fucked up head is to help another person out, I said, removing his neatly packed dry clean dress shirts from his suitcase and lying them on the bed. And our new friend here has had a rough night. Hang those up, would you? 
I asked, pointing to the shirts as I gathered his socks and underwear. Justin didn't move. He stared straight ahead. I was surprised and a little disappointed. He knew he was going to get a roommate sooner or later. This was just plain childish. I picked up the shirts myself. The noose hung eye-level to me when I opened the closet door. Crisp, white, perfectly knotted. The strong smell of bleach that's always used on institutional bedding stung my eyes. It had been fashioned from Justin's torn bedsheet. I looked up. The pole that had served as the clothing rod was wedged between the top shelf of the closet and the apex of the door molding. I pulled on it to test its strength. Below lay a stack of AA books for him to stand. I held it in my hand and admired his resourcefulness, his craftsmanship. I looked over my shoulder at him. He was frozen, pale, knees pulled up and tucked under his chin. I knew what they did to kids like him. I remembered the distant look in her eyes. I remembered the half-smile she would manage just for my sake. I remembered the pills and the bruises on her back from the electrically induced seizures. I wasn't going to let that happen again. I stood on the pile of big books and disassembled the gallows quickly. I threw the bedsheet over my shoulder. Robert's mind was somewhere else. He was unaware of the fact that my hands were shaking as bad as his now, unaware of the chaos. I took a deep breath and exhaled slowly. You follow me, I said, pointing at Justin. He could barely keep up with me as I bolted down the hallway and out the back door. I wrestled with the knots of the noose until they came apart and buried it as deep in the dumpster as I could without falling into the wretched thing. He stood there with his arms crossed over his bare chest, shivering. Do you know what we are now, I asked. What? Co-conspirators. If I don't report this, I'll be shit-canned. He nodded his head and wiped the tears from his face with his forearm. This way, I said, heading back to the building. Molly, April, get your coats, I said, tapping on the door of their room. They came out, zipped up, and stood at attention. They were puzzled, of course. Were they going to be taken out back and executed? Why was there a boy in his underwear following me around the middle of the night? They were leery of me, smelling of garbage and all. I must have looked crazed. I put an arm around each of their shoulders and pulled them in close for a huddle. There's an old man sitting in room 26. It's his first night, I whispered. I want you to take him out the side door to smoke. I want you to be nice to him. I want you to tell him everything's going to be all right. Do you understand? They both nodded. Get to work, I hissed at them. They scampered off in the opposite direction. We all live with the possibility of death every day. To most people, it is a stranger you run into occasionally. Your grandmother's delicate grip on your hand releases for the last time in her hospital bed, or you pass a smoking, twisted metal mess on the side of the freeway. You don't grow comfortable in his presence. Some of us, however, have a more personal relationship with it. I hadn't held it in my arms and slow danced with it, smoothed back its hair and whispered in its ear that everything would be okay for some time. I hadn't looked at the world like that in a while. 
back when I kept tabs on the plastic bags and rubbing alcohol and razor blades. And when the new set of knives from Mom sent for Christmas that year were just too sexy, too inviting, I dropped one in the trash can every day until they were gone so my girlfriend wouldn't notice. You got used to it. I scrubbed that dark, rust-colored stain out of the bathtub the first time she tried it. She said she just wanted to see what the water would look like, and I believed her because I had to. She was too young and wild and staggeringly perfect for me, so I took all of our change to the drugstore and bought bandages and cigarettes and pretended everything was fine. Some mornings I quietly and slowly moved my lips close to hers, not to pirate a kiss during her slumber, but instead to confirm that she was still breathing and to be prepared for the very real possibility that she wouldn't be. These are the things that people who have grown accustomed to death's proximity do. Charlie, what do you do, you know, when it gets bad? What do I tell a kid? Smoke cigarettes till your throat is sore and jerk off till your cock is raw? <laughs> you know what? Just fake it, man. He looked disappointed. It's true, I continued. Guys like you and me, we don't know how this life shit works. Through the two-inch opening of the office window, I could hear the girls' hush giggles while Robert spun a tall tail in a low register. Fake smile, I said. Nod your head. Say yes to kickball games and the picnics and the bullshit you'd never do in a million years. Say good to the barrage of how are yous that are going to come your way. Just fucking do it. Almost ten years earlier, I stood in the exact same place where he did in the middle of the night. I was considering grabbing the old man behind the counter around the throat and demanding the keys, not realizing the doors were unlocked and I was free to leave at any time. He smiled at me and gave me a carton of milk and suggested I take a hot bath. It was at that moment I knew the miserable impersonation of a human being I'd been doing needed work. When they told me to pray, I acted like I was praying. When they said the obsession to use drugs would be lifted, I pretended like I didn't think about shooting dope every minute of every day. When they told me I would know a new freedom and a new happiness, it was all I could do to suppress my laughter. When they said I would suddenly realize that God was doing for me what I could not do for myself, I fake smiled and nodded. And then it struck me. It wasn't what they told me. It was simply the fact they were telling me anything. They were helping me for no reason at all. They were strangers. Our afflictions similar, our backgrounds different, but our lives dependent on each other. If there was ever any evidence of anything divine in this world, then that was it. Here's the truth, Justin. It's just us, I said and pushing aside all the steps and traditions and bumper stickers and the book-thumping were just a great mass of scared, insecure, and seemingly unable fuck-ups who huddle together in our own storm of sickness and take care of each other. It defies reason. But we do it. And it works. And you just have to fucking believe me. I'll help you when you're insane and you help me out when I am. Deal? I stuck my hand out in the customary way people do when they've made a pact. He yawned. 
wasn't exactly the reaction I was looking for. He walked past my hand, put his arms around my torso, and gently squeezed. I think I'm going to try and lay down for a while, he said to my chest, and turned around and headed toward his room. I need you to be here when I come to work tomorrow night, I said. I'll be here. We all got what we needed that night. If it weren't for the containment of our skulls, the endorphins would have ricocheted off the ceiling like fireworks accidentally discharged indoors. Molly's desire to misbehave and April's need for her approval were both met. They had unintentionally used the charms the devil had given them to do a good deed, make an old man smile. Pretty girls, as we all know, will make life's poison go down smoother, and Mr. Turner was very grateful for the brief suspension of his heartache. Justin just wanted a reason to stay, and I got to make slight recompense on the sum of my sins. Sleep eventually took them all, leaving me to my filing. When the phone rings at 5 a.m., it could be anything. Hello? Milton Lakehouse. Hello? Is Charlie Hyatt there? Speaking. It's David Finch. Carrie's father. She said it would be okay to call you there. I knew what it was right away. My brain raced to compose small talk or pleasantries or anything to stop the next words from coming out of his mouth. Carrie's gone. I'm so sorry. <laughs>